restart the recording here. All right, so we're talking about who leads the church. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, we're not going to talk about everything there is to know about that, obviously, but we, we've not done that on any of these subjects. But we're going to delve into that subject tonight in part. And then next week, really, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, talking about the keys of the kingdom. And these last week, this week, and next week all kind of go together. That, that the church, the local church, holds the keys of the kingdom. That the local church is, has a specific structure and leadership. But that the congregation, alongside of that leadership, guards the church and disciplines the church. And, and so that's next week. So some of this, really, it's all kind of a three-parter that, that goes together. But we're, we're really going to focus on the leadership structure of the church. And I'm going to do a little bit of a little bit of ecumenical teaching for a little bit, and I'll explain that when we get to it. Um, some stuff that's not in the book so much. Um, but I, here's what I want you to discuss kind of as an opening uh, idea, get our minds going. Based on the assigned reading, what we've previously discussed c- concerning theological triage. So go back to session one. I, tr- I try to bring this up every three or four sessions. It's good practice for us. But if you go back, think about what you read, if you did read, I hope you did. Um, on You read two sections, one on church elders and one on congregationalism, and those are a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight. So based on that and, and what we know about theological triage, how important is, is a specific style of church government and leadership to you, and why? So you're going to practice at your tables right now a little bit of uh, theological triage, personal theological triage, which you're going to then talk about. Um, and so... Maybe you need to think about it like this. Some of you have been members of this church for a really, really long time. and Some of you haven't. Some of you are new. Um, but if you were looking for a church, this is maybe another way to phrase this. If you were looking for a church, how, imp- how high up the list would, would a specific kind of church government and church leadership be to you in that pursuit? All right? So that's another way of asking the, the same question. So, and then you're going to not just say, well, kind of important. Like, that's not really a helpful answer, right? Um, so say what you think, and then get, give kind of a why. Uh, why you think that would be, you know, on that first, second, third, or even first, second, third, fourth, depends on anything, in, in order of importance. What, what, what are you looking for? So just talk about that for a couple of minutes at your table. I'll bring us back together, open us in prayer, and then we'll have, uh, we'll go in some teaching time. Let me record. Let me give you my answer to the question which has changed some over the last uh, 15 years. It's important to recognize that we all progress doctrinally and we become more convinced about some things. Um, Let me start by saying this is not, uh, in any stretch, a first-order issue. This is not a a first-tier doctrinal matter, meaning... Um, we're not going to look at a church that operates uh, differently than we do, uh, even substantially differently than we do, and say that they are in sin or that they are, um, that, that they are not a church. Truthfully, a church could be a church without any form of church government at all. They could have no leadership. And if they are a group of people that are committed together to uh, preaching the word and observing the ordinances in some form, then then they are a church. 
Now, highly unhealthy, right? Uh, significantly flawed would be some descriptors that I would give of them, but they could still be a church. And I'm actually going to talk about that form of church government in a minute, uh, if, if you would even consider that a form. Um, so, so let's just say, let's just get that off the table. This, is, this doesn't make a place Christian or not. However, uh, I do think that, and, and I have progressed in this over the years, I have become more convictional on this, uh, particularly some details in this, about it rising to the level of second order, second tier over, over third now, congregationalism, which is a word I'm going to use and talk about here in a minute, um, has probably always been second tier, second order for me. Um, but the, the actual leadership structure hasn't, that I have been willing to and have served pastorally in, and have been members of churches that operate differently um, than we do now, and that I am now more convictional than I, than I would be. And so um, I, this conviction, conviction for what we're going to refer to as uh, elder-led congregationalism, which is our, our church's style of church government and leadership, is, uh, has risen to the level of importance for me over the last 15, 16 years or so to where I would now say um, that that I'll only be a member of a church that does that, that that functions in in that way. Seven years ago, when I was having little over seven years ago, and about eight years ago now, when I was having conversations with churches about maybe becoming their pastor, it was a very important question for me. And Christy and I prayed through it and talked about it, and we were willing to go and actually had some conversations with some churches who did not function that way, but it was convictional enough for us that I shared it from the outset. I said, you need to know, and it probably, well, the Lord's sovereign. I ended up where I was supposed to and grateful Amen. for that. Um, but we, um, uh, in his kind providence, trust me, I, I fully believe that. But um, I, would, I was clear on that from the outset. Folks, this is what I'm going to teach is the biblical model, and this is what, if you were to call me as your pastor, I would lead you towards a biblical model. And, and some, people don't, some people don't want that. So it is convictional for me, but again, not to the point where I would look at other churches, even in our community, and say, well, you're, you're you know, not a true church because you don't practice this. So this is the, I think it's important, and I think, uh, I hope, maybe as you've read, done the reading and, and we talked through some scripture tonight, that maybe it'll be that important for you. Um, so when people call and ask me, and this happens a lot in our congregation because people move a lot, they call and ask me, you know, can you help us find a church and a place? I'm doing that with a family right now. And uh, it's one of the things that I'm looking for, that if I'm going to make a recommendation, um, it, it's one of the things that I'm looking for. And it's also when people walk into our church for the first time, and, I, and I'll say, well, what, what about our church? How did you hear about our church? Whatever. And, and they, they start talking about our, they start talking about one of two things. They either say the word expository preaching, which is the style of preaching that is, uh, or they say they're looking for an elder-led church. Um, mo more often than not, once those people find us, they stay here because that's 
which what they were looking for. They were coming out of that, and they were just convictionally looking for that when they came. But that's not everybody that comes into our church. Some some of you came into our church. You didn't know that's what we were. You found out that's what we were. You were fine about fine with it because you'd never really thought maybe a whole lot about church government. Well, what I hope to do is convince you maybe tonight that if you ever were to leave, there's a reason why I think we function very well as a congregation and why we have the unity that we do and we have the clear mission that we do. And it's because I think we're, we're functioning as a New Testament, as close to a New Testament congregation as possible, at least within those, those parameters. So let me talk a little bit about other forms of church government. Now, what Dever does in the book, if you've done the reading in that chapter that I assigned, like chapter five, I think, that middle one, the first one, not the congregational side. Well, no, actually, that's the one I'm more talking about is that second to last chapter where he deals with congregationalism. He just really kind of deals with congregationalism and the point of congregationalism. What I want to do, he mentioned some things in there, but what I want to do is kind of really take a step back and, and maybe spend five, seven minutes on, it'll probably be longer than that, knowing me, but um, on what are the other options? Because it, it's good to know what other brothers and sisters in Christ believe and what they're practicing and I'm not going to make the argument for them, but I'm at least going to provide some factual information to you, so you would know. Oh, that's the kind of church. That's the kind of church they are. So they're really within Protestant denominations. So we're not talking about Catholicism here, even though Catholicism would fit fairly neatly within one of these, um, because it was based on the Catholic model. Um, but we're we're really within Protestant. Uh, denominations, you really have three main styles of church government. So we're talking about how churches are run. We're not really talking about leadership so much yet, but just how these decisions are made within a church. Two of those are top-down models, meaning decisions are made either by a select group of people within the church or by people outside of that group that are that are over that church or over a number of churches or even over an entire collection of churches around the world and decisions flow from the top to the to the bottom right so there's two of these one of them is the episcopalian the uh, the the uh, you know the, the episcopalians is the episcopalian side of uh, form of church government this comes from the greek word episkopos which is translated overseer. So when we see the word overseer, which we're going to see some today in Scripture, uh, that's the Greek word episkopos, which is where they get the Greek, where they get the English word episcopal or episcopalian from. Um, this is the Church of England. Uh, this is, and the Church of England was kind of modeled after the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so not all Anglicans, not all Episcopalians are part of the Church of England, but they're all modeled after that. And it's, it's this structure where you have an archbishop at the top. So the archbishop, who's the, not the name, but the station. You might know the archbishop, you probably saw him on TV yesterday, of Canterbury, right? That's the head of the Church of England. He spoke at the Queen's funeral. I, I guess, I didn't watch the Queen's funeral, but I would bet dollars to donuts he spoke at the Queen's funeral. Probably his job. Um, and so the Archbishop of Canterbury and underneath him are bishops and those bishops oversee rectors in the, on the Catholic side, they oversee priests and even in the, Episcopal, the American Episcopalian church, they, they call them priests. Um, but they oversee bishops, rector, rectors, congregations, and it's very top down. And there is, you are elected to those positions, but it's the elections are taking place within the leadership. So there's no, con the, 
to be a part of that congregation um, is, is to, to join and to show up and to receive the, what they would call the sacraments in Episcopalian type churches, but to receive the Lord's Supper, to be ministered by the Word, to serve as instructed. But the congregations aren't setting doctrine. The congregations aren't admitting members. The congregations aren't doing these things. The, the uh, hierarchical positions are, are doing them. Um, another, another big version of this within the United States is the United Methodist Church. Now, the one difference being the United Methodist Church doesn't have an archbishop. Um, but outside of not having the, the Episcopalians and the Methodists were the same church for a long time. And uh, in, in uh, more African-American cultures and African-American churches that have, you'll notice like AME churches, American Methodist Episcopalian, they're still connected, right, in, in some of those denominations. In the mainline denominations of the United States, the Episcopal Church and the Methodist Church split a, a long time ago, eight, early 1800s. Um, and, and so, but, but Methodists still have that very similar structure where pastors are assigned to churches, where decisions are made at the top. It's why the Methodist Church is currently splitting, because they can't agree on what to do with LGBTQ issues worldwide. And so they're, they're, they're currently going through one of the largest church splits, really, since the Great Schism. I mean, really, since the, for the last thousand years, one of the, greatest, one of the largest church splits taking place in our, in our time with the United Methodist Church, which is a global denomination, really, that follows an Episcopalian structure. Okay, so think top-down. The next is Presbyterian, and Presbyterian comes from the Greek, wo- Greek word uh, presbyteros, which means elder, so we're going to read some ver- verses today, it's going to say elder, that's the Greek word presbyteros, and uh, they're called Presbyterians because they have elders, and that's the way it works. Now you say, wait a second, we have elders, we're not Presbyterian, no, but we have, we, there's a distinct difference between us and, and this system. This is still top down. A Presbyterian church is still top-down. It is a little more congregational in that the congregations in a typical Presbyterian church are going to vote to do one thing, and that is to name elders. So typically, in an Episcopalian structure, the authority is raising up people to be bishops, rectors, that sort of thing. In a Presbyterian structure, the church is recognizing what's known as a session of elders. Elders come together in session to make decisions for the church. Then that session joins with other sessions um, in what's known as a uh, presbytery, right, that oversees a collection of churches. And then they even have a general assembly above that, which they send elders to who make decisions for, for like the whole collection. Um, but these are known as, the, the main distinction we would want to make is that Presbyterian churches are elder-ruled churches. So the membership doesn't vote on doctrine. The membership doesn't vote on uh, so, sometimes even calling a pastor, but often they will uh, because it's, it's within that function of naming elders. Um, but the, the elders of the church make the decisions for the congregation. So the elders are ruling in that they are, they are the final arbiters of making decisions. Number three is congregational. Now, just because you hear the word congregational, and I said elder-led congregationalism, you should, two things should happen. Number one, an antenna should go off and go, wait, that's us, which is important. But second, you don't need to think that all congregational churches are alike. Because they are not. <laughs> and um, there is great variety 
within congregationalism. Probably, well, I would say definitely, compared to the other two, there is far more variety within congregationalism than there is within uh, Episcopalian or Presbyterian systems. And the reason for that is because it is a bottom-up structure. That there is far more, and depends on, it really depends on what form of congregationalism that we're looking at, but when the, the, the congregation will make some or even all decisions for the church. And so because of that, you end up with a, a, a much larger variety of decisions being made and even as it relates to the leadership within the church and, the, and the, what the church votes on, what the church doesn't vote on. And so even within congregationalism, there are four or five different versions. And then even within those versions, you're going to have just a number of different like subversions of that. So even churches that are like ours that are elder-led, congregational-ruled churches there's great difference, can be great variety. And so we told you last week that Barry and I, along with uh, Chris Forwald, were going to a conference at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, which is a elder-led congregational church. Um, we observed one of their elder meetings. We observed one of their members meetings. We observed some staff meetings, some pastor meeting stuff. And they do things very different than us. Some of it are things I'm like, wow, that'd be kind of neat for us to think about doing here. And some of it we wouldn't want to do here because... That's just not who we would, it wouldn't fit who we are. And so there's great variety here. So let me just talk about what some of these are. And really what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with what I would perceive to be maybe the, le- the, the less close to the biblical model to the, to the closer. Really, I would even say a couple of these are further away from the biblical model than even conservative Presbyterians are. So I look at conservative Presbyterian churches, some of which we have even in our own city, and we really function very similarly. They just do a little more elder rule than we, than we do, but there's still a lot of similarities between the two. And so we may be, in, in, in actuality, closer to some of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters than we are to some pure, what, what, what they would consider pure congregationalists, okay? So let's just start there. There's really kind of two pure congregationalist models. One is a pure democracy. And within a pure democracy, and this exists within, even within Baptist life, it's, it's definitely the minority within Baptist life, but it exists within Baptist life. It exists within some congregational, there are churches that are known as congregational churches. It exists, it exists within varied denominations or we, even within non-denominational churches, which I don't even really think non-denominational churches exist if you want to know the truth, but it's okay. Um, I, I won't go there. Um, so so here, here's, what, here's what this is. This is just pure democracy, meaning, uh, hey, we're going to... We're going to have a meeting tonight. These churches meet all the time, meaning they have members meetings all the time, like sometimes weekly. And the church will approve, hey, the youth group needs, you know, some new chairs. Let's vote for the new chairs. And this Sunday school class wants to take the van next week. Can they take the van next week? And, uh, we, you know, we need some new window blinds. Can we vote some new window blinds? And they literally vote on everything. And you can imagine this would this would. I mean, it really gums up the system, probably, a whole lot, and it probably leads to a lot of 
uh, uh, arguing and bickering back and forth. Um, I, I've shared this story before. My wife will tell you. She, she grew up in a church, a Baptist church, that was more like this than not. And they had a two-hour members meeting. They, were, they needed to buy some, some new trash cans for their church. They had a two-hour discussion on what color the trash cans were going to be. Can I just tell you something that we're never going to vote on as a church? First off, probably the color of anything. Okay, but second, definitely the color trash cans. Okay, we're not voting on the color trash cans. So that's this is like pure democracy. There is no real leader. There's just the the will of the people, right? The ten, the kind of the polar opposite than of that, but truthfully, almost as effective is no government at all. Okay, it really is the polar opposite. One church over here is voting on everything, which I don't think is as biblical as it could be. And one church over here is voting on nothing. And everybody's just kind of doing whatever they want to do. All right? But that's still kind of congregational because there's not a leader making a decision. There's no real direction. And this is actually what we're seeing, or we were seeing, we're seeing less of it now, but we were seeing this uh, during what was known as the emerging church movement in the early part of this century. There was a, a church movement called the Emergent Church and, and it was like trying to nail jello to a wall. You never could really figure out what it was or what they were trying to do. And they were just kind of existing. And that's, you see that some, you see a lot less of it now. It really doesn't last very long, right? Because eventually there's no structure and everybody's going to kind of go their own, go their own way. Um, so I don't think either one of those are really healthy long term. Uh, although they are congregational, the people are getting to make some decisions. Uh, some of those pure democracy churches will have, we talked about this this weekend, me and Chris and, and Barry did just talk about some church history. You go on a trip with me, you get to talk about church history and fun stuff like that, right? The churches used to practice, particularly congregational churches, used to practice what was known as the annual call because they would need to call a pastor. I mean, somebody would need to preach, right? Uh, but you wouldn't want, they wouldn't want to give that guy too much authority or even too much stability. And so every year they would hold a church vote again to determine if he was going to be the pastor or not. And it's called the annual call. And there were times in history, even in Southern Baptist life, where this was not all that uncommon. It, wasn't, it was never like the thing that everybody did. But at times, and I'm sure there's still probably a church to do that. Maybe some of you that have been around a long time, maybe grew up in a church that did that, that, that had, an, had an annual call. These are probably not the most healthy ways to do it. The next one would be uh, really Western, really American um, really finding its roots in um, the in modernity, the uh, the modern American revivalist movement of the 1950s and 60s, um, which saw a lot of people profess faith in Jesus, and they wanted to put them in churches. And we looked at effective businesses, and we said, let's just pattern our churches after these businesses, right? And so we we ended up with kind of a church board. Uh, model, and the pastor was seen kind of as the CEO of the board, and various people within the church operated with, within that board. Um, sometimes this board was known as deacons, but I'm going to talk about pastor and deacons in a minute. Oftentimes it wasn't even that, though. It was just like, so have you ever heard of churches that have church councils? That's a term that people use. That, that's kind of a, it's, it was in this, it's that church council is in that same vein, Right. That the congregation kind of elects a board of people who who make those who make those, but those people aren't expected to be elders. They're not expected to be pastors. They're not even expected to be deacons in a lot of cases. They're simply just 
some people, maybe with some business skills or some finance skills or some personnel skills or some building skills, and they, they serve the church that way. Um, the most common within Baptist life, it's what I grew up with, it's what maybe a lot of you did, was a, was a single elder or pastor uh, model where it was very clear who the, I use the definite, definite article there, the leader was, right? Even if there were other pastors, it wasn't really a plurality of elders. There were other, we called them in the church that I grew up in, we had a pastor and we had a bunch of ministers, we had a minister of music, minister of education. Uh, so in the church I grew up in, my grandfather was the senior pastor. It was a large church. My grandfather was the senior pastor for 21 years. My other grandfather was the minister of education. And I can kind of remember thinking as a kid, like, well, why is one of them a pastor, one of them a minister? And nobody really answered the question, other than he was, he was the pastor, right? Um, and then most often these churches have a deacon board that may or may not function very well alongside of the elders or alongside of the pastor or the pastors and ministers uh, may be how they have a great relationship in most cases the way that i've seen this function and i would say even though i wasn't here somebody that was here you could speak up and tell me otherwise uh, but i think it was what was happening here before we went to elders 14 years ago is that the deacons really kind of served as elders that's that they, they were kind of quasi elders they oversaw some spiritual needs of the church. They oversaw some administrative needs of the church. Really, we were asking, and a lot of Baptist churches do this, they ask too much of the deacons, and, and they, they're asking them to do things. Uh, and so sometimes it's, it's not as successful. So there are a lot. This is the dominant, within Baptist life, this is the dominant form of congregationalism, kind of single pastor, then a larger church, ministers, associate pastors, that sort of thing, operating in conjunction with or in opposition to, depending on the health of the church, the deacons, and then congregational approval varying on a sliding scale on what the congregation would vote for. But always the congregation going to vote for the, the pastor, going to vote for the elder, or going to vote for the other you know, ministers, probably going to elect deacons, and that sort of thing. And then you have our model, uh, a plurality of elders, but not elders who rule in a Presbyterian style, but elders who lead congregationally. The idea being that there are, that we have more than one man serving in the office of elder. Right now we have nine men in our church serving in the office of elder, six of which are vocation, no, six of which are non-vocational. They don't work here. Three of us do work here. Um, we do have a lead pastor, and I told him when they hired me, and I still say it to this day, I don't care what you call me. You can call me lead pastor, you can call me senior pastor, you can call me preacher. None of that matters. It's pretty clear from a congregational standpoint that I am the most vocal of the elders. I'm the most out front of the elders. You hear from me more often than not. But when we're in elder meeting and we're discussing something, and I'm leading the discussion, it comes time to vote on something, I get one vote. And my vote's not any more special than anyone else's. Uh, I will often vote last, so they won't know how I'm going to vote on something. Because I don't. I, in that moment, I don't want any deference at all. In that moment, I want our elders to be able to be elders. But our church still votes on some things. Our church still uh, is structured in that, in, in that way. So what I want us to do is look at the New Testament for a minute and ask the question, well, why is that the way that we function? 
Why this book that we've provided for you? Why does he present a a plural model of eldership paired with congregationalism? Why why is that the model that we're presenting as the most faithful in the New Testament? So let's just talk about church leadership now. And a plurality of elders is, I believe, the New Testament model. And so just look at some places in the New Testament where we where we see this. One of us is Acts chapter. So if you've got your Bible, you can open to some of these. You can help us. We're going to look at some places where elders are mentioned. First is Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas coming back from Paul's first missionary journey. Wasn't all that long. Uh, they didn't go all that far. They went a lot further than anybody else had ever gone up until that point. Um, uh, preaching the gospel. They had great success preaching the gospel. And you get to the end of that time, and in verse 21, we read, when they had preached the gospel to that city uh, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, which is where they had been sent from, was Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue the faith, and saying that through tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so what was the model from the very first missionary journey of the New Testament church? What's the model? The model is churches, every church. So not like some big you know, Roman Catholic church, not some Episcopalian structure, but in every church there was appointed what? Elders. Now, do you notice that this is going to be important for our discussion? Is there an S on the end of elder or not in our Bibles? There, there is. It should be. That makes it what in the English language? Plural, right? It's going to be really important, okay? So somebody read Titus 1.5 for us. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. All right, so the reason I went from Acts 14 to, to Titus chapter 1 was because Acts 14 is early Paul, right? First missionary journey. Titus 1 is late Paul, all right? Paul has been through it, first, second, third, maybe even fourth missionary journey by this time. We are a couple of decades later. And what does Paul tell Titus that he sent him to Crete, the island, right, in the Mediterranean, to do? To appoint elders in every church. Same thing, same exact thing Paul and Barnabas did at the beginning of the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul is now passing on to the next generation of church leaders to do the same exact thing. Appoint elders in the churches, right? What about Acts 20, verse 17? Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders in the church to come to him. All right, so this is, a, a, Ephesus is a place where Paul has, has been, spent a lot of time, had planted uh, a church and was going, he thought, to his death. He's going back to Jerusalem, and Paul thinks he's going back to his death. And what does he do? He goes, he wants to see these brothers who he'd spent like a year and a half with. He loved, and he sends for them. But who does he send? He doesn't send for the whole church. He doesn't send for the pastor. He doesn't send. He sends for the elders of the church, and they come out to him, right? So you may think, well, elders was a Paul thing, but there were other apostles too, right? Did the other apostles talk about this? Well, sure they did. Somebody read 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4 for us. Therefore, I exert the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of all the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, 
nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. All right, so Peter says to the elders, so this isn't Paul, it's Peter, again saying to the elders, plural, with an S, among you, as a fellow elder, so there's a, he's, he's recognizing himself as this within the church, but he also recognizes that in these churches, there are actually five churches that he writes this letter to, so he's writing to, to all of them, and, and he tells them to, to be elders and to do it in a certain way, and we're going to come back to see the certain way that he tells them to do it with. So this is just a sampling. There are other places. We're going to look at a few of them when we go through this other thing. But here's, here's the point I wanted you to see. In every case in the New Testament, in every case in the New Testament, where the leaders of the church are mentioned, whether they are called pastors, um, which only happens one, one place, um, they're called elders, which is the majority of the time, that presbyteros, right? Uh, or they're called overseers, which is the second most common. In every case that it is a noun describing the leaders of the church, it is always plural. Always. Unless one is referring to himself, like Peter did, as an elder. So I am a pastor, I am an elder, but I am a part of the elders. And every church, it, from, the, from the first missionary journey to the passing the mantle, was expected to plant elders. So it seems as if the, the model within the New Testament, through Paul's ministry, Peter's ministry, the ministry of the apostles, from beginning to end, from early to late, is a plurality of elders within the church. Now you may ask, well, what about these different words, right? We got this word pastor, we got this word elder, we got this word bishop. Are these the same Thing. So the one place where we see the word pastor is in Ephesians chapter 4. Somebody read verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 4 for me. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Yeah. To equip the saints for the word. Yeah. It keeps going. Sorry. Yeah. This is Ephesians 4. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers. Shepherd teachers is a compound word in, in the Greek. Um, these are nouns, right? And this is, this is the one place where we see... Um, the office of elder called a pastor. It's actually, again, a compound word, pastor and teacher being together uh, as a, a person within the church that the Lord has given to the church. Now, apostles and prophets existed in the first century. They provided for us the New Testament. Evangelists really are, are people that are, we didn't think like missionary in this case. These are people that are going into places that don't have churches and are planting churches like the apostle Paul did. And then in, in the main, for the local church, we're going to have this person, these people who are shepherd teachers, that that's part of their function, right? So pastor, really that word that we get pastor has gone through several different languages. Um, it was the, it's the word poimen in Greek. That's translated into Latin. That, that word means shepherd. That's translated into uh, the Latin word for shepherd, which we then transliterate into our English, and we get the word pastor from, okay? So that's what we're really calling pastors as shepherds, okay? So go back to 1 Peter 5 with me, and let's look back at those verses Barry read. I've got them here. So I exhort the elders among you, right, plural elders, as a fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ, as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. 
Now it's translated there, shepherd, and in Ephesians chapter 4, it's translated pastor, but it's the same exact Greek word. One, you, one with an ending that makes it a noun, and one with an ending that makes it a verb. We transliterate it to pastor, and that's where we get the word that you know of. But really, what Peter is saying here in 1 Peter 5 is that elders do the work of shepherds. So that elders and pastors are, are the same. But let's look at another place. Go back to Acts chapter 20. Remember in Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul is ending his third missionary journey. On his way to Jerusalem, goes to, goes to Miletus, calls the Ephesian elders to the port city of Miletus, and he says in verse 28, remember he's talking to the elders, and he says in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church which he obtained with his blood. Now, this is important. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Who watches out for a flock? A shepherd does. A pastor does, right? But not only that. And from among you, and from yourselves, uh, sorry, um, and in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, that overseers is that word episkopos, right? And so here, he's speaking to elders, and he's telling elders that they pastor while they oversee. So while there are other denominations that make distinctions between a pastor or an elder or a bishop, we look at the evidence in the New Testament and we say, these are all the same things. They're just describing a multifaceted position, right? So you're describing different responsibilities that are found within the position, that are found within the office. That's what we call it. It's called the office of elder. That are found within the office of elder. But there's not an office of bishop, an office of elder, an office of pastor, an office of overseer. The Bishop, by the way, is the transliterated word from overseer. It's where we get that word from. It just means overseer. Um, th there's not a difference. That these are all the same person. These are all the same people. This is all the same office. So then what is it that these people are supposed to do? They're supposed to do two things. Number one, they're supposed to oversee. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 13, uh, Paul, is, uh, Paul says, let the elder who rules well, let the elder, that word rule, is that, is that word episkopos. It's just in the verb form. So let the elder who oversees well. So one of the things elders do is that they, they oversee. This is why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, part of the qualifications, we're going to talk about qualifications for elders a little bit more after the break and then a lot more next week. Um, this is why in that qualification, it says that a man must be able to rule his household well. He says, because if a man can't, and in your Bible, it may use the word manage. In the ESV, it uses the word manage. A man must manage his household well. Because if a man can't manage his household well, how is he supposed to be trusted with managing the household of God? Right? But that word manage is the word rule. It's the same word. It's just translated differently in our English Bibles often. But it's the same word. That this is the thing that the elders do. And a man has to be able to do it. If a man is going to let the elder who rules well... If an elder's going to rule well, he has to be able to rule well at home, and the home life is the way that we check the, the, his ability to do the church life, right? Now, Hebrews 13, 17, we're going to come back to this, but if somebody has that, I want you to read that verse for us. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All right, so we're going to come back to the obey and submit to them after the break. But here's what I want you to see from that, right? Elders, elders lead the church as ones who have to give an account. They oversee the church and are responsible to them, to, to, to God for them. That this is, this is one of the roles, one of the functions of elder is to oversee. And the author of Hebrews tells us we will be, we will be asked how we did it. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like, but, but I can just tell you this. It, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's something I take serious. Something we got to take serious. It's, if, there, there's one other elder in here. Right, right now, there's one other elder in here. So, so there, there's going to be some moment in eternity where Barry and I are going to be asked about those of you that have s- submitted yourself in membership to to our church. We're we're going to be asked about it. Now, I, again, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that held account's going to be. But I, but I should take it seriously um, because it's our responsibility to to oversee, to rule, to manage all the same thing. The church. The second function of the elders is to teach. Elders teach. Back in 1 Timothy 5, 13, let the elder who rules well be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So it's one of the functions of elder is to teach, which is why in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, we're told that an elder must be able to teach. It's, it's the If you read the list of responsibilities in 1 Timothy 3, there's really only two that don't apply just to Christianity, right? There's that he must not be a new convert and he must be able to teach. That, that that's it, right? That, that the standard for an elder is a man who is, who is qualified because he demonstrates Christian morality and he's got to be able to provide sound doctrinal instruction to the church, now, there's varying degrees of ability in this. They don't all have to be able to preach. They maybe don't even all have to be able to teach in the way that we would think, like teaching in a small group or teaching in the way that I do. But they must be able to effectively teach doctrinal truths. When we go back to Ephesians 4, remember that pastor, that pastor teacher, that compound word, teaching is how pastors equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what the, the God has given to the church elders, pastor teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body, right? So that the church can be on mission. We'll say, we say it like this, just think about our mission. Our mission is to make disciples that make disciples. So my job, our job as elders, number one is to oversee that process. Number two is to teach that in, in our congregation in such a way that it equips you to make disciples, that that's what you do. That's what the church does. It's the mission of the church. And we oversee it and we equip it by teaching it well. So I'm already over. I'm going to give you a four-minute break. We're going to come back together at 710. All right. And I'm going to fly. It's 706, 710. Go grab you some water. All right. So with your permission, uh, what I want to do, we're not going to take a vote on it. Um, I'm going to, I know, you see what I did? Um, I'm going to skip that middle implication and application discussion. And if we have time at the end for you, to, we'll definitely have time for you to discuss one, but I may have you discuss both, or maybe your table could pick one or the other. 
but I want to make sure that I get through, because if, if I don't get through all of this, you're going to have some questions. And I really don't have all that much more to talk about, um, but I, I want to make sure that we can, we can get there, okay? So, because here's really where it all comes together. The, the things that I talked about before the break was church government, which we landed on congregationalism, right? And then I talked about leadership, plurality of elders, and it's these two ideas that combine that gives us a plurality of elders, you know, led by a plurality of elders, governed by a governed by the congregation, right? So uh, um, we're, we're combining these two ideas now, where in a Presbyterian system, the elders, even though they're elected by the congregation, then look back at the congregation and say, this is what we're doing in a in elder-led congregationalism, right? In our model, we sometimes say, this is what we're doing. And we sometimes say, this is what we want to do. What do you think? And always, you have the ability as the congregation to have the final word. If you so choose, even the things that you give to the elders, the congregation could take back. <laughs> you could say, no, we want to vote on that. <laughs> no, we want, to, we want to talk about that. Now, we don't put things before you that you've given to us to do, right? But there are ways, and we, every congregational church is going to structure this differently, but you can go to our website and read our bylaws. And if you read our bylaws close enough, here's what you'll find. There are some kind of rip cords in there that the congregation could say, hold on a second, we want to talk about this. Um, and, and there are some things that you definitely want to talk about and we want you to talk about, things like a church budget, calling a new pastor, you know, selling property, buying property, building a building, all these kind of things you have to vote on, right? But then there's also some things that you don't do but you could, if you, if you wanted to, trash can, if you wanted to call a members meeting to discuss the color of the trash cans, I can't stop you. We can't stop you. I would ask you not to do that, though. <laughs> and I imagine you don't want to do that. And it's going to require you to actually get, this is what I love about, I think our bylaws are pretty good on this. It's actually going to get you, require you to get, and I don't remember what the percentage is, a certain percentage of signatures from members of our church that agree with you to, to, to call the meeting. And whatever you want to call the meeting on, you can do it, and we'll vote on whatever it is. Or you can just wait for a quarterly members meeting and vote to change the agenda. Yep. You know that? We present an agenda to you every, month, every time we have a members meeting. You could stop Barry, who typically, and say, I, I move that we talk about the color of the trash cans, and if enough people agree with you to add it to the agenda, it's on the agenda. And you can do that. Right? So, we, so what's that relationship? That's how I want us to talk about. I wasted too much time just then. I, I get going on these things, right? Because I like to think about how does this apply to our church. So what's the relationship between elders and the congregation? Because here's what it's not supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a us versus them. It's not, it's not you know, a, an antagonistic, it shouldn't be an antagonistic relationship. That's not the goal. Paul, you know, he wasn't creating the White House and the Congress, you know, and, and, 
and one party's of one and one party's the other, and they're going to bicker back and forth. That, that's not what he's establishing, right? So the Bible provides us some, some things. First is a recognition of qualified elders, that the, the, the congregation recognizes qualified men within the congregation or at sometimes outside the congregation to come and to serve. And he talks about this in the book. So I'm not going to go into detail. You can read it. He talks about outside men coming. He talks about, you know, Timothy going to Ephesus. And, and you know, so basically doing kind of what I did, coming in from the outside uh, to, to Nansman River. But that kind of the, the main way that we're going to do that is we're going to evaluate men. There's two places that we can do this by. And we're going to go into these evaluations next week when we talk about how we guard the church. Because I really think the most important thing the congregation can do to guard the church is to elect qualified men as elders. The most important thing you can do is elect men as qualified elders. If you do that, then you're, you're, the congregation is guarding, guarding the church, right? So Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, which for the sake of time we're not going to read, we'll read it next week, along with 1 Timothy chapter 3, which we've already referenced some. Those are the two places where we get the qualifications for an elder. And the church holds the keys to that. You say, the congregation holds the keys to that. You say, this guy is qualified, and we see evidence of the qualifications in his life, and we, we want him to be an a elder, pastor, overseer of our church. Or, no, we don't. And so for somebody to be an elder of our church requires a church vote. It actually requires a special process that we go through. Um, that, that we have set out, that you, the congregation, have set out for how we determine who elders will be. Now, I'll say this. I don't think we do that enough. I really don't. I, I, think, I think we ought to have more. I think there are some men who are qualified to be elders in our church that probably ought to be elders in our church. And sometimes we just get a little complacent. We're like, ah, oh, we like the elders we have. They do a good job. You know, I hope you think so. Um, but I would love to see us regularly raising up new men to be elders. Maybe it would give... Some guys that have been doing it a while, a break, maybe they would, we would just all do it together. I don't know. But that's, that's part of that relationship is that, yes, elders oversee the church, but the church, the congregation, the assembly is the one who appoints them into those positions, right? Yes. So in reference to like, like hiring pastors, mm-hmm. one of the main qualifications, well, the main qualification might be overstating, is that they have control of their house mm-hmm. and if we're hiring somebody and then we don't know them and they're coming from how how can we even evaluate that yeah so so that's a great question how, how do we and it's not just that but how do we evaluate a lot of these things right so there's there's two things that we do one is we do try to spend an ample amount of time right so um and and, and some of it is the the congregation is trusting the elders in that we're asking those kind of questions, that we're asking family life questions. It's one of the reasons that we encourage the man, if he's married, to bring his wife, if he has children, to bring his children. And one of the things that I'm watching, I'm watching, how how do you interact with your wife? (laughs) How do you interact with your children? Now, there could be things at home we don't see, right? But we're, we're doing our best to test that. When we bring a guy in from the outside, though, and this is the second part of that, we are in some ways trusting another local congregation. So the guys that we have hired um, and would continue in the system that we have where we're bringing on a guy and he is automatically becoming a pastor of our church, they have already been vetted and ordained 
by another local church. And so we are, you worked, when you hired me in 2015 to be the lead pastor, you were in essence, in some ways, even though you had a great personnel team and elder, or not personnel, search team and elders who did a lot of research on me and asked me tons and tons and tons and tons of questions, right? You were in some ways trusting Florida Boulevard Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which ordained me in April of 2002, right? And has not removed that ordination. You were also trusting, though, uh, Parkwood Baptist Church, which employed me for seven years before I moved here. And some of you, probably Barry, talked to people at Parkwood Baptist Church <laughs> and probably asked some of, some of these qualification questions, right? And so that's how we do it. In some ways, we are having to, just like Ephesus trusted Paul when he sent Timothy. And said, Timothy, you're going to go and you're going to do this thing there. Or the churches in Crete trusted Titus when Paul, trusted Paul when, when they sent Titus. So it is, there is somewhat a measure of trust there, particularly for vocational elders that are, that are moving in. But there's nothing that says that vocational elders can't come up the same way that non-vocational elders do. Right? That vocational elders could come up through the congregation in the same way. We don't have to hire them from, from, the, from the outside. Does that help? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Number two. The congregation submits to the elders. So let's go back to, to Hebrews chapter 13, because we skipped, Barry read that. I think Barry read that part for us. Um, we, I said we're going to come back to a phrase, so let me go back to that phrase. He, Hebrews chapter 13, the author of Hebrews, one New Testament book we don't know the author of. Um, I actually think it was a sermon that was written down, because um, it reads like a sermon, a really good one. Um, he, says, he says, Obey your leaders, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the instruction is that, that the congregation, the people, will trust the elders and will allow them to lead them and guide them in a way of submission. You say, now, submission to, to what? So... I'm going to talk about some things in a minute that the congregation holds final authority over. And the congregation should hold final authority over those things. But if the elders say, hey, we're going to buy some trash cans, <laughs> and the gray ones are going to work best, you probably shouldn't fight the elders on the fact that we bought gray trash cans. That, and that's kind of a silly example of submitting to elders. There may be other ways that, that we do. If, if that you, and, and really, submission comes with trust, right? Wives are called in the same way, same exact word, to submit to their husbands. But what's built into that submission? Trust that this man loves the Lord, is following the Lord, and, and is looking out for my best. And so the congregation works best when it's willing to say, not, not to not ask questions, to, to, to ask about the process that got us to that decision. But when we say, hey, you've asked us to make this decision and we've made this decision, even if you're like, you know, I maybe would have made a different decision. Know this. You probably, in most cases, you're probably going to be best just to say, hey, they've looked at it and I'm going to trust them and I'm going to submit to them. And in some cases, there are even elders that are doing that. Do you know that? There are times that, are, that there's one elder, two elders, three elders or something that maybe would have done it different than the whole collective decided to do it. And we don't ever tell you when those moments are. You want to know why? Because we then, as church members, are submitting to the elders. 
And we're saying, hey, this is what the group decided, and so we're going to go along with it. But there are some things on which the congregation does hold final authority and needs to hold final authority. Now, one of them I talked about last week, we're going to unpack big next week, and that's matters of discipline. So if you remember Matthew chapter 16, Peter professes faith in Christ, and Jesus says, I give you the keys to the kingdom. Upon this rock, I will build my church, ecclesia, the assembly. I will give you the keys to the kingdom, and what you bind on earth will be bound in on heaven and right you go to matthew 18 and he outlines this this you know treatise of church discipline ending with the church not the elders admitting people into membership and removing people into membership out of membership but the church doing that and then he uses the same exact words keys to the kingdom and what is bound on earth will be bound in heaven what's loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven so we're going to come back to this next week. But really, the way that I presented that last week was the congregation holds the keys to the front door and the back door. You get to say who is a part of us and who isn't. And that's important. That, that you, have a, you have final authority into affirming someone's legitimate profession of faith. Now, part of that is you're trusting us, right? Because you can't all talk to these people. And so we talk to these people, but we still in some ways vote. I think we're talking about it. Barry, this is one of the things that we talked about this weekend. Maybe we ought to have a little bit more of a formal system of the church actually voting on these things uh, instead of us just saying, all right, everybody's excited that this family's joining. Let's all clap and wave, which is what we do right now. Um, not that I have any question about people that we're presenting to you, but what if we ever did have a question? What if somebody in the church did and we want our processes to reflect what we actually believe and we believe the church holds those keys. So that's number one. Number two is doctrine. And you say, well, wait a second. I thought pastors were the ones who were supposed to teach. I thought elders were the ones who were supposed to teach. What do you mean we hold the keys to doctrine? Well, go to Galatians, go to Galatians chapter one with me, really quick. Galatians chapter one. And in Galatians chapter, the, the book of New Testament book of Galatians is, um, if, if ever there was a book that should be read in a shouting, you know, voice, it's, it's this one. I mean, this is, if Paul was writing this in a text or an email, it would be in all caps, okay? He's angry. He's angry writing to the church at Galatia. Listen to what, what he says. Verse 2. And all the brothers who are with me, so he's, he's talked about, I'm writing to you, and all the brothers are with me, to the churches at Galatia. So he's writing to the church. He's not writing to the elders. He's writing to the church, the congregation. He says this in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ or turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from the heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And he's writing to the congregation. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, congregation, you better practice your authority when it comes to the people that are teaching doctrine. And if they're presenting a gospel that is contrary to the one that is found in Scripture, remove them. He says, even if it's an angel coming down from heaven, don't let him in your church. Now, this is why, and this argument, Barry and I heard somebody make this argument just so passionately this weekend. And um, I think Mark makes this argument. Another book that I used to prepare this makes, makes this same argument. This is one of the reasons why congregational churches not 100%, but tend 
to last a very long time sticking true to the Word of God. And it's why top-down denominations more often than congregational denominations end up rejecting the Word of God and, and going towards theological liberalism. It's why our mainline denominations, because all it takes is a few people in a top-down denomination to change their mind on something. And they're telling the churches what to do. It's why the United Methodist Church is splitting. Because they're telling the church what to do. Right? It's why uh, the Presbyterian Church back in the 90s, early 2000s, whenever it was, PC, PCUSA, and it's why they split. Right? Now, it may happen in one Baptist church. It may happen in another Baptist church. It may happen in a few. It may happen in a few congregational churches. But in the main, when the congregation is taking serious Galatians 1, if somebody else is proclaiming a gospel that's contrary to that in Scripture, they're cursed. It's because you can't have one guy say, no, this is what we believe now. That we, the congregation, has, holds the final authority. So that's the relationship. It's not antagonistic. It's, it's submission. It's almost in some ways mutual submission, right? Because if the congregation says, this is what we're going to do, I either need to lead in submission to you in that or I need to go find another place to be, right? And you are expected then to, to submit to us, to, to the elders and in the things that you've entrusted to us, but you're also checking our teachings against Scripture. You see how we're just, we're working together for for what we do, we're leading, you're following, but you're holding accountable as you appoint us to do it. Elder-led congregationalism. All right, you definitely don't have time to do two questions. So you can do either one of them. The first one could be, what, what could happen to a local church when elders, pastors, if you want to use that word, fail to oversee or teach as instructed by Scripture? So what happens when we abdicate one or both of those responsibilities? Or what are some examples of times when the congregation should trust the elders and examples of when they should challenge them? Right? So when, when should we submit and when should we say, hold on a second, buddy. Um, so pick one of those two at your table and I'm going to give you about two minutes and then I'm going to uh, close with some prayer. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Uh, I hope you had good. You can, if you don't have kids to go pick up, you can stay and have a discussion. That'll be fine. But some of you have kids to go pick up. We're going to let you do that. Let me pray. God, we thank you for the biblical model. We thank you, God, that we're not arrogant enough to assume that the way we do it is perfect. Um, keep us from that. Keep us humble, we pray. Uh, but God, we thank you that your word seems to be clear and, and that we can, within the parameters set, uh, can have godly men leading us and a congregation um, that follows while doing their responsibility of guarding the teaching, appointing, um, appointing those godly men uh, whom they can trust. Uh, Father, we thank you that Jesus is ultimately our shepherd and uh, that we together are following him on mission to make disciples uh, as he commanded us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here. Next week, church discipline. A lot of talk about church discipline. It'd be great.